listening to Literature Done Juicy, a show that explores books in the juiciest way possible. My name's Jade, and in this season, we're exploring novels which feature lost protagonists. This is episode two of the season, and we'll be discussing the children's classic Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. We'll be chatting about her dress, portal quests, LSD, mental conditions, a bit of child love, animals, and expectations of children in the Victorian era. I must admit, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is undeniably a children's book, but it has managed to captivate the hearts and minds of both adults and children alike since its initial publication in 1865. Nowadays, most people are familiar with the animated Disney adaptation, which cleverly combines two separate tales, which is Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and then also Carol's second novel, Through the Looking Glass. Instead of going through a plot and character breakdown like I did in the last episode, I'm going to tell you how the original differs from the very popular and well-known Disney version. As I stated, the brilliant mind behind the whimsical world is none other than author Lewis Carroll, whose real name is actually Lewis Dodgson. He masterfully weaves a tale centred around a curious young girl named Alice, who finds herself tumbling down a rabbit hole into a realm filled with absurdity and nonsense. As Alice plunges deeper into this mysterious rabbit hole, she encounters an array of peculiar characters and finds herself entangled in increasingly bizarre situations. She first crosses paths with the White Rabbit, a perpetually late and frantic creature, and makes the impulsive decision to follow him. What both the novel and the movie have in common is that at the start of the story, Alice is being read to by her sister, and she's incredibly bored because the book isn't really for children. It's just, yeah, nothing's really going on. And surprisingly enough, the Disney version, the illustration is actually also Alice's sister, even though it definitely looks like her mother. Up until the point where she goes down the rabbit hole, the book and the movie are pretty much the same, but in the novel, her descent leads her to a room with an assortment of doors. She peers through the tiniest door, revealing a breathtaking garden, and she also notices a table adorned with cookies that boldly proclaim, eat me. Upon consuming one of these treats, she undergoes a series of size-altering transformations, one of which renders her enormous and prompts her to shed tears, which then creates a river. Throughout this peculiar experience, Alice subtly reflects on her own changing body, serving as a not-so-subtle metaphor for the journey of puberty. And this narration of Alice acknowledging that her body is changing is missing from the movie. Alice manages to shrink herself in the novel by using the white rabbit's fan to cool herself down and then she swims through her own tears and encounters a swimming mouse. She then keeps swimming and encounters a dodo and other animals who concoct a plan to dry themselves off with a unconventional caucus race. So essentially just running around in a circle and then this circle was briefly referenced to within the Disney animated version. Following the race, the two versions of the story converge again at the White Rabbit's residence. The White Rabbit urgently informs Alice of his quest to locate the Duchess's glove and fan, and inside the rabbit's house, Alice indulges in another eat-me cookie and grows large once more before becoming stuck in the confines of the house. To remedy this situation, the White Rabbit devises a plan to set the house on fire, leading to other animals to pelt Alice with stones, which miraculously transform to cupcakes when they make contact. Alice consumes one and then shrinks down smaller than her original size. 
So once she's shrunk down to this smaller size, Alice is fleeing the chaotic scene and she encounters a puppy while in this miniature state. She's overlying with fear and she manages to divert the puppy's attention by throwing a stick and then escapes. Alice then eventually encounters the caterpillar who is perched on top of a mushroom. The caterpillar inquires, who are you? To which Alice has no immediate answer. She decides to recite a poem, specifically Old Father William, in an attempt to define herself. The caterpillar imparts a valuable piece of knowledge, revealing that one side of the mushroom will make her grow smaller, while the other will make her grow taller. And with this newfound insight, she breaks off two pieces from each side, enabling her to control her size and continue her adventure. When the caterpillar actually leaves from this conversation, he remains a caterpillar, whereas in the Disney version, he turns into a butterfly. Alice's journey then takes her to an estate where she observes a fish delivering an invitation to a butler of the estate, which is inviting the Duchess to play croquette with the Queen. Alice boldly lets herself into the house and encounters the Duchess, the cook, and the Cheshire cat. They engage in a curious conversation about the cat's grin, for the Duchess's patient wears thin, then Alice introduces the topic of the Earth's rotation, as you do. Unexpectedly, the Duchess entrusts her baby to Alice for nursing and she walks outside, but then all of a sudden the infant undergoes a transformation into a pig and runs off. The Cheshire Cat then reappears and directs Alice to the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. At the tea party, there is no mention of unbirthday celebrations, but this is a party that is meant to last forever because the Mad Hatter had had a dispute with time. Riddles and poems are recited endlessly, leaving Alice increasingly fatigued. She then decides to leave the party as she notices a door which is within a tree, and it returns her to the same corridor of doors which she encounters at the start of her journey. But this time, she knows how to use the food, and she uses it to her advantage to navigate through the small door that had the garden on the other side. This pivotal moment in the story highlights Alice's growth and learning as a character, which is actually something that the Disney adaptation overlooks. Once she goes through the door into the gardens, she then approaches three playing cards who are diligently painting white roses red. Nothing happens to these cards, unlike in the Disney version where they're found out. Alice just simply keeps walking on. Alice is then forced to participate in a game of croquette with the Queen, which uses live animals as the equipment. At this juncture, the Cheshire Cat makes another appearance, and the Queen issues a decree for the Cheshire Cat to be beheaded, while the Duchess is released from the confinement of prison to deal with her elusive feline. And the reason for the Duchess's imprisonment is never explained within the novel. She's just in prison. The Duchess is brought to the croquette grounds, but the Cheshire Cat remains elusive. Although frustrated, the croquette game resumes and Alice is introduced by the Duchess to the Griffin, who in turn introduces her to the Mock Turtle. The Mock Turtle is very melancholy and depressed and shares his tale of once being a genuine turtle and also there's a scene where a lobster is also singing at the same time. The Griffin then just guides Alice away again towards a new trial which is occurring at the Queen's residence. So this trial centres around the Knave of Hearts, who is accused of stealing the Queen's tarts. During the proceedings, Alice gradually increases in size. When the Dormouse remarks on her absurd growth, Alice retorts that it's not absurd, everybody can grow. She is then summoned as a witness, but the King, who is disturbed by her presence, orders her to leave. Alice refuses and boldly challenges the King and Queen's nonsensical proceedings, and in response they threaten to behead her, leading to Alice's abrupt awakening by her sister. 
So as you can see, there's definitely a little bit of difference between the two. In the Disney version, the dress that Alice wears is blue and almost all colored illustrated versions of Alice have Alice in the blue dress. The original dress color for Alice was yellow. Some people hypothesize that Carol chose the color because around that time, the color yellow was connected to the insane. So there's this historical association between the color yellow and mental health facilities in Russia and other countries, particularly during the late 19th and 20th century. In the late 19th century, the Russian Empire established mental asylums that were often painted yellow. This choice of color was not unique to Russia and was influenced by several factors, including cultural beliefs and architectural trends of the time. Yellow was often seen as cheerful and uplifting, and it was believed that by using colors like yellow on the exteriors of the facilities, it could have a positive and calming effect on the patients. Another quirky example is Vincent van Gogh's famous painting, The Yellow House. He used the color yellow to convey a sense of vibrancy and intensity in his living quarters. However, he himself struggled with mental health, and some have interpreted the use of yellow in his work as a reflection of his inner turmoil, because as his mental health started to decline, he was increasing the amount of yellow he would use within his works. So it's interesting that a color that is usually associated with happiness and joy can be transformed into something darker through its use within facilities such as mental asylums. Insanity and nonsense is a key theme in Alice's adventures in Wonderland, and for Alice to actually get into this world, she uses what's termed in the fantasy world as a portal quest. So the novel is often considered a portal fantasy and one of the first to do so because it follows the classic conventions of the genre. A portal fantasy is where the protagonist, who comes from typically the real world, enters a fantastical other world through a portal or gateway. And here's how Alice actually fits this criteria. She's a main character from the real world and she's bored during a hot summer's day. She's relatable and an ordinary girl, which is often a common characteristic for portal quest fantasy protagonists. In her case, the portal to Wonderland is a rabbit hole, which she falls down once she follows the white rabbit. And this rabbit hole serves as the entry point from the real world into Wonderland. Wonderland is a surreal and nonsensical place filled with bizarre creatures, magical events and unusual landscapes. And it's vastly different from the real world where Alice has come from. It challenges the rules of logic and reason within her original reality. She embarks on a series of adventures and encounters various strange characters, including the Cheshire Cat, the Mad Hatter, and the Queen of Hearts, and her journey is marked by exploration, discovery, and challenges that test her understanding of the world. Towards the end of the story, Alice simply wakes up, which removes her from Wonderland and enters her back into the real world. Within Wonderland, there is a lot of eating that Alice participates in, which changes her size and also her perception of the world itself. And it was featured so prominently that there's an actual disorder which has been named after the story. So Alice in Wonderland syndrome presents itself as a perpetual disorder marked by distortions in time perception, visual experiences, and one's sense of body size and shape. This condition draws its name from Alice's Ventures in Wonderland as Alice undergoes peculiar transformations. Despite its nature, the exact prevalence of the syndrome remains unknown, largely due to the absence of comprehensive data and lack of clearly defined diagnostic criteria. The cause of the syndrome is still unknown, but it is often associated with migraines, head trauma, and Epstein-Barr virus. 
the syndrome actually has over 60 associated symptoms. Although there are no standardized guidelines on diagnosing the disorder, it is a recognized disorder. However, when treating the disorder, you treat it depending on what's actually causing the visual disturbance. Another obvious link with Alice and her perception is something that's kind of been done to death, and that is the tie-in with hallucinogenic drugs such as LSD and mushrooms. I don't want to harp on for it for too long as I feel like it's a little bit tired and it's been debunked, but we'll have a quick chat about it anyway. I don't really believe in this hypothesis because the novel was actually published way before the discovery of LSD, which was in the 20th century. And the same can be said for magic mushrooms, because although they were around, their use was not widespread or well documented in Victorian England. The use of magic mushrooms as a recreational or spiritual substance didn't actually gain widespread attention in the Western world until about the mid-20th century, so well after the publication of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. However, some people obviously have drawn parallels between the elements of the story and the psychedelic experiences associated with both LSD and magic mushrooms. Both the story and the drugs are associated with visual distortions. In the book, Alice's body size changes, objects appear and disappear, and the world around her is filled with strange, fantastical creatures. LSD users often report seeing vibrant colours, patterns, and visual changes. A more plausible connection between the physical changes is a connection to growing up, which is also referenced when she is crying in the river of her own tears. At Alice's age, her body would have been changing in different ways, such as growing taller, and her views on the world around her would also be changing in the same way. This perspective of growth and change takes on added weight when considering one of the most significant controversies surrounding Lewis Carroll, which revolves around the allegations of inappropriate relationships with children, particularly young girls. These allegations stem from his close friendship with several young girls, including Alice Little, who inspired the character Alice in his novels. Some argue that Carol's fascination with photographing and drawing young girls in various stages of undress is suggestive of pedophilic tendencies, but others maintain that this was actually common practice in Victorian photography and art in general and may not necessarily indicate malicious intent. Carol took over 3,000 photographs, and out of these pictures, 30 of them are of children nude. Only four photos in which the child subject is fully nude survived. Carol himself would actually say that his preference for children was entirely aesthetic. Famous author Vladimir Nabokov, who was an admirer of Carol and author of the infamous classic Lolita, said, and this is a direct quote, Some odd scruple prevented me from alluding in Lolita to his wretched perversion and to those ambiguous photographs he took in dim rooms. He got away with it as so many Victorians got away with pedestry and nympholepsy. His were sad, scrawny little nymphettes, bedraggling and half undressed or semi-undraped as if participating in some dusty and dreadful charade. Humbert Humbert within his story names Lolita a nymphette, which is basically just a child that he has sexualized. And Nabokov is basically saying that Carol was doing the same thing. He was sexualizing these children. The Victorians did have a concept of childhood, which had the notion of preserving child's sexual innocence. And for some children in the 19th century, the growth of photography served as a silent reproach on the faces of street urchins. So these are children who lived on the street who were just pulled aside and photographed. And this is also who Carol used in some of his photographs as well. 
The Victorians did have a complex and evolving view of children, which was influenced by various societal, cultural, and economic factors. Attitudes towards children did undergo significant change during the 19th century, which was reflecting the shifts in social and philosophical thinking at the time. Schools prior to the late 18th century did very little to mark out childhood, and all children from toddlers to teenage would be mixed together in a class indiscriminately. In the Victorian era, childhood was romanticised as an age of unspoiled innocence and untarnished purity. Within this worldview, children were often regarded as possessing a moral superiority over adults, owing to their presumed lack of exposure to the world's vices and moral decay. This idealization found expression in the literature era, with authors such as Charles Dickens portraying virtuous child characters such as Oliver Twist. Despite the idealized view of children, the era was marked by widespread child labor. Many children, especially from working-class families, were sent to work in factories, mines, and as domestic servants at very young ages. This contradiction between the romanticized image of child and the reality of child labor was a source of social concern. During that time, half the children born died before the age of five. The average family had around six or seven children. Children would clean gears of machines when the machines themselves were still running. They were forced to crawl into mine shafts and also forced to chimney sweep. The boys at chimney sweep would often form deformities due to the practice and usually would have open sores, lung diseases, and also a special cancer coined chimney sweeper's disease, which was a cancer of the scrotum. Sometimes when the boys would get stuck in the chimney, other boys would be sent up to prick the feet of them with pins, or the occupants would light a fire to try and urge them out. On top of child labour, there was also many child prostitutes during this era. Child prostitutes from the age of 8 or 9 were not uncommon. Some Victorians were concerned that the children who participated in prostitution would have their morals removed due to the practice, but as a whole, people didn't really see a problem with the these street kids coined street urchins were, like I said, photographed by Carol, as well as his infamous photographs of Alice Little and her sisters. He stated that he aimed to document their lives, and many of the photos were taken in outdoor settings such as parks and open fields. These settings allowed him to capture the natural, unopposed expressions and activities of the children. Victorians loved Roman art where there were paintings and statues of nude bodies and this was commonplace within their society. When photography came out, Victorians were eager to take pictures including ones that contained nudity because it was considered art. Children were seen as innocent so being nude in photographs was seen as a portrayal of this innocence and not porn. However, James R. Kinsade argues in his novel Child Loving, The Erotic Child and Victorian Culture, that Victorian society exhibited a fascination with the innocence and vulnerability of children, which paradoxically led to the eroticization of childhood. He suggests that the suppression of open discussions about sexuality led to the sublimation of sexual themes in other areas, including the representation of children. His views are controversial, but certainly add to the sexualization of children debate, which is still ongoing in relation to Lewis Carroll's photography and relationship with Alice Little. At the end of the day, I guess we're looking at photographs and behaviors from a modern lens, so it's difficult to know the truth of what actually occurred and what the intentions were behind the relationship and the photos. Lewis Carroll exposes the power relationship of the adult and child within Alice's adventures in Wonderland. He shows a strong sympathy for the child Alice who is thrown into a man and disorderly world of adults. 
By sending the child into this adult world, Carol subverts the social conventions and binary opposition between the adult and the child. The animals themselves can be seen to take the place of the humans within Alice's journey, and there are various scenes where she is belittled due to her age. Alice does participate in the discussion between the animals when they're trying to decide how they can get dry, and she's interrupted by the lorry, and he states, I'm older than you and must know better. Another example is the caterpillar who ignores her questions and changes the subject of conversation and advises Alice to keep her temper when she asks them. The caterpillar is another example where he ignores her question, changes the subject, and then advises Alice to keep her temper. So observing Alice's perspective, it becomes apparent that the adult figures, or in this case the animals, exhibit qualities of absurdity, cruelty, irrationality, and also emotional volatility. These figures tend to succumb to fits of anger and engage in erratic behavior, and they readily resort to punishment when they perceive others as inferior. Big case example is the queen, off with her head. In her encounters with these rude adults or animals, Alice is characterized as a middle-class young girl who consistently displays politeness and impeccable manners. These animals demonstrate adult authority and absurdity and can be seen as representing figures of authority in Alice's actual world. They behave in an absurd way, reflecting her struggle to make sense of the adult world and its rules, also serving as a metaphor for puberty. On top of the changing views of children and how they should be viewed and treated, a similar discourse was actually occurring in the Victorian era at the time of this publication within the world of animals. Alice stumbles upon many animals during her exploration through Wonderland, and all of whom possess sentient and human-like features, such as the white rabbit wearing clothing and the mock turtle exhibiting a human mental illness such as depression. The portrayals of the animals diverge significantly from other works featuring animals of that time. In this regard, Carol's treatment of animals disturbs the established model of subjectivity which was upheld by the liberals during that era and introduces disruptions into the education system. In 1845, animal welfare became entwined with state education as the National School Society agreed that teachers should teach children to deal with animals in kindness within their lessons. The Victorian era witnessed a growing awareness of animal cruelty and the need for animal welfare reforms, and this is subtly addressed in the story through the Duchess's treatment of her cat, which is the Cheshire cat, suggesting a critique of inhumane treatment of animals. Similarly to the vines in the ruins in episode 1 of this season, the animals in Wonderland act as an other, so the inhabitants of Wonderland adhere to their own unique and often absurd social norms. The Queen of Hearts, for instance, values arbitrary rules of off with their head as a means of maintaining order. These differing norms contrast with Alice's understanding of proper behaviour and create this sense of other. The animals often symbolise specific human traits, vices or virtues. For instance, the White Rabbit can symbolise the pressure of time and conformity, or the Cheshire Cat may represent the elusive nature of reality. And in essence, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland remains a literary masterpiece that invites the readers to explore the boundaries of imagination, childhood innocence, and the nonsensical, while also providing deeper discussions about Victorian society and its complex relationship with children, animals, and power. I hope you enjoyed this episode as that's all we've got time for. And if you've learned something new, please remember to subscribe to the podcast and rate and review if you haven't already. Our Instagram is in the description box for even more refreshing content. 
In the next episode, we will be exploring a literal work of art, and that is the novel House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielewski, where a new house is bigger in the inside than it is on the outside. Stay juicy, and I look forward to chatting to you next time. Bye!